Welcome to today's Church Central podcast. We're a family of churches across Birmingham. To find out more, head to churchcentral.org.uk. Hey everybody, my name is Rich and we're going to be carrying on today in our series in the Psalms called Abide, Relearning Relationship with God in the Psalms. Psalm 66 that you've just had read to you is, I don't know if you caught this, a song of passionate love for God, of enjoyment of God, of celebration of God, of devotion to God. It is an exuberant, exhilarating praise song, a joyful song, a song that makes you smile when you sing it. Some of you would probably hate it. Uh, So much so that if you had the music today in your headphones, it would be upbeat, it would be celebratory, and it would get your feet tapping and your hands clapping and the crowd jumping. And we know that because it's full of words like joyful, sing, shout, songs, And it's meant to be played so loud that verse one, all the earth will hear it. And verse four, everything on earth will join in. It is not the song of someone who reluctantly obeys God or the song of someone who joylessly turns up for God or who dutifully joins the marketing team for God. It is the song of someone who passionately loves God, whose heart has been grabbed by him. And I don't know if you know this, but having your heart grabbed so that it passionately beats with love for God is actually the most important and primary call on your life. Jesus summed up the whole of the Bible by saying that the most important commandment was love the Lord your God and everything else flows from that place. When sitting down to do an appraisal in the book of Revelation with the church in Ephesus, he, like any good boss, commends lots of positive things that he sees, lots of good feedback. He commends their effort, their sacrifice, their doctrinal orthodoxy, their perseverance. But the thing that was lacking, that displeased him, was that their love had gone, their hearts had gone. They didn't love him. And whereas the Pharisees had everything right on the outside, so much that Jesus called them whitewashed tombs, very presentable and clean on the outside, but under the surface it stinks like death. Yet in the complete opposite way round, as Johnny reminded us last week, when Jesus speaks to Peter, who is a person who is a total mess in so many ways externally, and is interviewing him to see if he can commission him and trust him as a leader in the early church, Jesus was willing to be incredibly patient and gracious with his staggering self-importance, with his pathetic tendency to compare himself, with his very recent history of violent knife crime where he slashed someone's ear off, with his emotional fragility so volatile that it makes Rich Pitt look like a composed, stoic person of stability. Jesus can work with all of that because the one interview question he asked Peter was, do you love me? And even if your outside is a mess, if you love Jesus, then he can work with you. See, our love and passion and devotion to God is the most important thing in the world. But here's my question. What about when you don't feel any love for God? What about when you don't have any passion for him? What about when Psalm 66 isn't the song that you want to sing? What about when your love has grown cold? What if you've never felt any love for God? What if it's something that you did feel, but it's waning and it's being choked by circumstances and pressure? What do you do then? 
Is there a way back to passion for God? In the language of our series, is there a way you can relearn love for him? How do you cultivate or recultivate a passion for him? And this is where Psalm 66 can really help us because throughout the psalm, we see that this songwriter is not just one of those happy clappy types who's always cheerful. Actually, there is a rock solid method, strategy, principle that he employs over and over again in this song that leads him to passion and love for God. And it's very, very simple, but we so often overlook it. It's this, that our love for God is the result of looking to God. Our love for God is the result of looking to God. And that's what the psalmist does in this song. He's trying to lead himself and remember all of God's people who are gathered with him to have this wholehearted passion. And his great strategy, his great technique is that he fills his mind and his attention and his gaze and his vision and his focus. And thus the vision and gaze and attention of all of those he's leading with God. 40 times in 20 verses, he focuses on God. Words like God, the Lord are peppered throughout. And then if you add in words like you, yours or your referring to God or his, he and him describing God, then 19 out of the 20 verses of this psalm are drenched with God. He knew what we need to know when our love is waning, that love for God is the result of looking to God. And we often forget this. Right. We often try to look inside ourselves to see how we're doing and to try and generate some love for God. And if we look inside ourselves and we find that things aren't looking great at the moment, it's been not a great few months in our relationship with God. Then we just get depressed and we're tempted either to uh, throw in the towel or to settle for half heartedness or to become a hypocrite who pretends externally. And then we're back into whitewashed tombs and we don't want to go there. Or we look inside and we're doing quite well in the last few months, did a few hours on the old 24 hours in prayer in the 40 days, listened to a podcast every now and again, bought a book, haven't read it yet. But yeah, going pretty well. And then we become those horrible, smug religious types who are pleased with their religious performance. And so to look in, whether it's going badly or great, is not the answer. We need to look up to God. Because love for God is not generated by us looking in. It's actually a response that comes, that flows, that happens in us when we see how great, how good, how glorious, how worthy of our love God is. Then love wells up and we end up loving him. 1 John teaches us famously that we love because he first loved us. Our love is responsive and it comes from the overflow of his love for us. If it is, I'm gonna say this in a few different ways to try and help us, if it is a dance, his love leads the dance. And our love is simply the steps that follow after his. If it's a tennis game, his love is the serve that comes over the net with all the power and all the force and all the magnificence that he throws into it. And our love is the return where we put out a racket and and it bounces off us. And of course it goes back, but it's not us who's got all of the power and the grace. We're just returning his wonderful initiating serve to us. If it's a choral song, his love is the call and ours is simply the response. 
if we're on a walk on the Harborne walkway, I don't know if any of you have done that, and you're in one of those amazing reverberating tunnels, his love is the resounding bellow that reverberates through the tunnel, and our love is the echo that responds. Last way of saying this, if we were a little baby, his love is the father smiling over our cot smiling at us, full of love, full of protection and responsibility like a good father. And our love, well, we're just a little baby. We don't know everything. We don't know anything, really. And yet when we see his smile, we somehow learn to smile back to him. We learn to love for the first time or again by looking to God. And so that's what we're going to do for the rest of this talk and that's what the psalmist does for the rest of psalm 66 he looks at five particular things about god that generate love for him and we want to look at those before we're done the first thing he sees is god's glory in verses one to four three times in just a few verses god's glory is praised it speaks of the glory of his name how glorious he is and how worthy of worldwide global glorious praise he is. Now God's glory, it's a bit of religious jargon, it's quite hard to define, but in scripture it's used to describe God's godness, okay? His uniqueness, his radiance, his power, his holiness. It's how he is the most awesome being that exists, how he is other to us. He is stunning, he is radiant, he is glorious. It's how he's the God of whom angels in heaven are circling around him. And yet he is so glorious that even those glorious angelic creatures that we would be terrified of if we saw them, they cover their faces because they're so amazed at the glory of God. He is staggering. He is eternal. He is wonderful. He is glorious. How do you cultivate love for God? You look to him in his glory. You speak out and call to mind and remember that he is the glorious God. But that's not enough because many religions believe in a big, shiny, intimidating, massive God. But in the Christian faith, there's much more to win our hearts. You want to see, secondly, God's salvation. Verse 5 says this, come and see what our God has done, what awesome miracles he performs for people. He made a dry path through the Red Sea and his people went across on foot. There we rejoiced in him. He's honing in here on one very specific event, not just on who God is in his glory, but what God has done in, for him, the Exodus. This is a story that you'll know where God's people were stuck and lost and trapped, unable to save themselves by their own efforts. And after a Passover lamb had been killed to save them from judgment, God comes down, defeats their enemy and makes a way to lead them out through the waters of the Red Sea, out of slavery to new life on the other side, no longer slaves, now God's chosen people heading for the promised land. And that is like the high point of the Old Testament and the psalmist retells that story again and again and again because he knows that if you can remember that you have been saved, then you will sing. And if we have become followers of Jesus, we don't only have to look back to the Exodus, as great as that is, we have a far greater salvation to recall. Where we were stuck in our slavery to sin, lost 
trapped, unable to save ourselves by our own efforts. And so the Son of God comes down in Jesus and dies as our Passover lamb to save us from judgment. And he defeats our enemies of sin and death and makes a way for us now to come out through the waters, not of the Red Sea, but of baptism to new life so that we now no longer slaves have a bright future as God's people heading for the promised land. And recalling our exodus, our salvation, what Jesus has done for us has power to recapture our hearts again. You don't have to look inside yourself and try your best to be passionate. Look out to how he has saved you and watch your heart catch up. I love this quote from Richard Sibbs on how to cultivate a soft heart towards God. He says, as when things are cold, we bring them to the fire to heat and melt. So bring we our cold hearts to the fire of the love of Christ. Consider we of our sins against Christ and of Christ's love towards us. Dwell upon this meditation. Think what great love Christ hath shown unto us and how little we have deserved. And this will make our hearts to melt and be as pliable as wax before the sun. If thou wilt have this tender and melting heart, if you want to love him, then be always under the sunshine of the gospel. That is a better motivation for spending some time with God in the morning, isn't it? Not because you should, but because it is sunshine to melt our hearts afresh. Call to mind God's salvation. Thirdly, call to mind God's faithfulness, especially in hard times. Now, when we're going through hard times, we often assume that they're going to be the things that call our love for God. And perhaps we know those for whom that has been the case. And so we want to cast our minds away from the hard things in our life or live in denial so that we can cheer up and be good Christians. But that is a massive misstep and a cruel irony, because in this psalm, he doesn't cut out the hard times, but writes them in to the song that's going to get put in the Bible. And all the way through verses eight to 15, he retells this story of hard moments, testing moments, battles, moments when God felt like he was absent. Because when you then come through those moments and you remember how God led you through and how God was your God, even in that darkest place, then your love for him rekindles to a whole new level. Verse 12 sums it up really well. We went through fire and flood, but you brought us to a place of great abundance. If you're struggling to love God, don't just try hard. Remember those dark moments in your life where he has been enough for you. I'll tell you what, I have never felt in a church meeting closeness to God like I did in the darkest night of my life when some of the darkest things that have happened to us were happening. That is the time when I knew the closeness of God the most. And when I recall that, I tell you what, my heart starts to love him afresh. Next, the psalmist looks to God's kindness to us. Most of this psalm is spoken collectively to us. It speaks of declaring and reminding and recalling the mercy and grace and goodness of God to the whole community. Shared memories of God's kindness, shared experiences of his grace, battles won together, journeys undertaken together. And so it's written in the we and the us. 
And the same principle can be true for us at Church Central South Carnet. We can look around us and see across our whole church, across our family of churches and in the individual lives of those we're connected to in community, we can see the goodness of God. Struggling are you to generate some love for God? Look around you to what he's done in the lives of others. But then, and we'll finish here, the psalm transitions from we and us to where it lands, which is in me and I and my, to concentrate not on his global glory or his communal kindness, but his kindness to me as an individual. Verse 16 says, Come and listen, all you who fear God, and I will tell you what he did for me. For I cried out to him for help, praising him as I spoke. If I had not confessed the sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened, but God did listen. He paid attention to my prayer. Praise God who did not ignore my prayer or withdraw his unfailing love from me. There weren't only stories of what God had done for Israel. There were stories of what God had done for him. God wasn't just forgiver in general. He's the one who'd forgiven him. Not just the one who is love in general, but who had loved me. And when you hear that call again and you see it afresh, that Jesus Christ loves you when you see the father smile over you then you begin to smile back and relearn a love for him our love is a result of looking to god